This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Drexel University law professor Adam Benferrato discusses his book, A Minor Revolution, How Prioritizing Kids Benefits Us All. He argues that America is failing its children morally, socially, and economically. He's interviewed by journalist and author Anya Kamenetz. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Um, Adam, I wanted to know, first of all, how you came to write this book, A Minor Revolution. Is this a personal project for you? Yeah, it's actually, um, it's the most personal project I've ever worked on. Um, it really has its origins in my childhood. So I think um, as a kid, I was really attuned um, to the mistreatment of children that I saw. I think I um, was very upset by the fact that my best friend's father spanked him. Um, I think I was really aware of the effects of poverty on children that I knew. I was outraged, honestly, as a you know 12-year-old that I couldn't vote. Um, I felt like it wasn't right um, to be treated like a second-class citizen. And I think that um, desire to address unfairness and injustice two children carried me to law school and certainly informed um, kind of the questions um, that I was interested in as a law professor um, and in the teaching that I do. So I teach a course called The Rights of Children um, because I think this is the most important conversation um, we should be having. Wow. Okay. So the rights of children are the most important conversation we should be having right now. Um, tell me why, why is putting first, why is it so important to put children first and why now? Yeah. So I think I come at this, um, differently than a lot of people who write about human rights in general. Um, my real argument is that this is not simply a moral imperative. Um, this is an economic and social necessity. And that is because so many social problems are best treated, addressed, Um, in childhood rather than waiting until problems emerge um, and kind of metastasize and harden. And so one of the pushbacks I sometimes get when I talk about prioritizing kids is, well, you must mean, therefore, um, that we should uh, disparage and harm old people. Um, And that's the exact opposite, actually, of, of my intent. I really think this isn't a zero-sum game. Um, it's simply a choice of where we allocate societal and emphasize societal resources. So it's a choice when it comes to public health, whether to invest in um, preventative care, uh, prenatal care, uh, invest in checkups um, for preschoolers, or wait until problems emerge and pay for very costly um, triple bypasses and treatment of um, preventable illnesses. Same thing when it comes to uh, crime, um, unemployment. Um, We can either invest on the front end in wonderful uh, early education, robust public schools, community programs, making neighborhoods strong, or we can wait for problems to emerge and pay for courts and prisons and police and drug treatment and uh, programs to address uh, the unhoused. And so to me, um, the question 
that I think prioritizing kids' answers is what is the best way to have this society that we all want to live in. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really well put. And I think what this book does so well is you are joining um, somewhat of a familiar argument about the necessity to build that social safety net, to have that care economy and support for young people, because yes, it's going to pay off later, but also joining it to this legal mechanism and this entire structure we have of rights um, that we can apply in the law, we can apply in policy to ensure that we actually do those things, because I think what we've all kind of discovered is that America has a, has a sad promise of not living up to the rhetoric about, you know, children is children are our future. Um, and, and that really connects for me to the book that I published last year, which is how we got to know each other, The Stolen Year. And that was looking at the impact of the pandemic on children. Um, and lately there've been, there's been a lot of kind of depressing news on that topic. Uh, children globally lost one third of a year of schooling on average, um, in terms of their learning, uh, an AP investigation found at least a quarter million children in the U S and that was just across 21 states. A quarter million children they found were not enrolled in school at all. They're lost from the education roles. We don't know where they are or what they're doing. Um, the CDC recently reported um, with the youth uh, risk survey that teen mental health is worse than ever. Um, from your perspective in the reporting and the work that you've done on a minor revolution, how, how do you explain how the COVID-19 reaction and response in the U.S. uniquely um, impacted children? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think um, the story, so I have your wonderful book uh, right here. And I think, you know, the stories that we both tell um, about um, children's uh, place in American society today, I think are very um, similar. Um, and I, you know, really share um, the despair and outrage at um, the treatment of children um, over the last few years. Now, part of that comes from um, having lived through this as a parent of two small children. This is, you know, as I say, this is a personal project, not simply from my own childhood, but from my present. Um, and I think, you know, the, the two of the major themes of a minor revolution, uh, I think, that come out in the experience of the pandemic. First, would relate to just how so often <clears throat> children are ignored in our major policy debates. Even though their interests are really front and center, um, they are the ones who are often most impacted by um, our decisions. Often they're at the back of our thoughts. Uh, and that was certainly true, I think, in the the pandemic. Um, you know, I think if you look, I live in downtown Philadelphia. So the bar closest to my house stayed open. The public school, elementary school closest to my house closed down. And the reason that was offered was economic necessity. We've got to keep those, those businesses for the economic health of Philadelphia. Um, and again, if you look at any of the data Economic health is absolutely tied to early education. And yet we ignore kids and the impact on kids in these moments of panic and in the most mundane decisions that we make on a day-to-day -day basis, whether that's, you know, in small communities or whether that's as a nation. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, I, because I was writing this book and had kids, I constantly was aware of how kids seemed not to even 
beyond the agenda. So I had, you know, a very small kid. And I remember, you know, the public health message I, I got uh, saying, congratulations, everyone's now vaccinated. And, you know, as a city, we're so excited and everything. And I thought, well, no, the vaccine hasn't been approved for children under five. Not everyone has been vaccinated. Um, and I think, you know, the other major theme that was really implicated, I think, in the pandemic was how we have made a decision as a society that the project of raising children into uh, successful, healthy, productive adults is a project for individual parents. They are the decision makers. They are in charge of the destiny of their children. And when they do well, we will cheer them. And when they do poorly, we will cast them off as deadbeat dads and welfare mothers. Um, and I think personally, I felt this very much during the pandemic that here we had this massive social problem, um, economic problem uh, facing us as a nation. And yet I felt as an individual parent suddenly alone in the world. Here are your two kids. School is canceled for a year. Figure this out. Educate them. If, they, if Zoom school isn't working, well, you just order a supplemental math book and you teach your kid alone. You fill in the gaps. You continue with your job. And if you do well, great. You're a true American. And if your kids fall behind, if they have mental health problems or any of the things that you were just mentioning, and certainly uh, do a, an outstanding job of, of outlining in your book, that's on you. That was your personal failure. And I think, you know, my, my, one of my major agenda items in this book is to say, no, children are our collective future. We all have a stake in kids and we need to be thinking about them not simply as the property of their parents but as right future citizens um, and current citizens um, of america and <clears throat> i think if we did that we would have made incredibly different choices throughout and i think in cultures where thinking about children is built into the law I think we saw very, very different decisions, decisions to better balance, um, you know, the health of teachers and the needs of parents with the needs of children. Um, and I think that comes from simple things like ratifying the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, this uh, groundbreaking, groundbreaking human rights treaty from 1989. We are the only UN member state not to sign that document. Why did we not sign? Well, I think a lot has to do with a parent's um, responsibility, parent's rights model that really, I think, um, came to the fore during the course of the 20th century that was powerfully reinforced um, by a series of Supreme Court opinions that uh, emphasized the centrality of the parent as the ultimate decider on matters of education, um, what members of 
families and communities a child should be able uh, to um, relate to decisions about access to information. Um, and I think, you know, we are, and certainly during the pandemic, um, uh, experienced um, the very negative repercussions of that nar- very narrow um, framing. Um, I, I think that's so well put, and there's so much there. You know, uh, just I just want to highlight, call up a couple of key points I think that you made. First of all, that when you write children's rights and children's welfare into the law, then you make better decisions for the nation as a whole. There's no there's no losers and no winners in that game because investing in children, as you argue, and I obviously agree, benefits everyone truly. Um, that's really, really important, I think. The other part is the experience that maybe for you know some of us, like you and I, who share more privilege, was a first-time experience of feeling under-resourced, underpowered on our own, that gives us the opportunity to have some empathy for, I would say, you know, a very broadly shared experience by families in this country that they that they are on their own. And the strange bargain that we seem to have struck, as you mentioned, talking about parents' rights, that there is a longstanding political um, debate and vision of this country that wants to give parents power over their children, but not resources to help them. I think that's 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 exactly right. And and, and I don't want to say that, you know, all of the experiences out of the pandemic were negative. One that relates directly, that's a positive that comes directly out of uh, your comments, is that we actually had this amazing experience with this uh, expansion of the child tax credit, right? And overnight, I mean, literally overnight, we, we lifted millions of kids out of poverty simply by giving their parents money. And it was this incredible success story. I mean, it is absolutely outrageous to me that in a country that, you know, our Fortune 500 companies profits last year, something like $16 trillion. And yet, Roughly 11 million kids live in poverty conditions. That is, to me, out, outlandish. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And one of the things that we've learned, though, during the pandemic is we can easily do something about that. And what I find heartening is the economists then provided the data to show, hey, if we do this, if we invest this amount of money now, it's going to come back in great profits as our nation in the future. So when you lift kids out of poverty when they're young, they're much more likely to actually live that American dream. And so um, unfortunately, I think the conditions um, in Congress have prevented what seems like a no-brainer, right? Yes, lift poor kids out of poverty, and that is the pathway to a great America. That should be a bipartisan issue, uh, an easy call. And yet we've struggled after coming out of the pandemic to continue that mindset. Yeah, it's really, um, it's painful to see. And I remember sort of delaying submitting my book as the, what was the Build Back Better plan made its way slowly through Congress, hoping that I'd have a happy ending which would involve America joining its peer countries in these basic policies, paid family leave, childcare, 
subsidies and child income subsidies. Um, we're still waiting, um, but but we can learn from history. And one thing that we both do in our books um, that you do more extensively is talking about the original child rights movement, um, which people might have you know some idea about, um, and and what you call child savers in the U.S. Tell me about that movement and why it didn't uh, go all the way through to to victory. Yeah, so this is kind of a forgotten history, um, and you know certainly as someone who's very interested in um, looking back. Um, at our country's uh, foundations, um, I decided to open the book. And I think with, with looking at this marvelous and, and really um, kind of epiphany moment, so across the country, right at the turn of the century, um, coming out of the horrors of the Industrial Revolution, people started to say, well, this is terrible, right? We have children with black lungs. We need to do something about child labor. So they passed child labor laws. They said, wait a second, there are snake oil uh, salesmen selling, um, you know, baby calming agents that have morphine and alcohol and kill infants. We need to regulate this and change how these things are advertised. We had people saying, well, the pathway to a strong America is robust, strong public education. We need to build schools. We need to make these schools temples, literally the the best they can be, because if we put money here, it's going to, the interest is going to compound for the whole life of, of young people. We had individuals looking at, at the terrible conditions of, you know, young boys in particular, put into the adult criminal justice system. And we had, you know, across the country, people advocating for the creation of a juvenile justice system, which would be grounded in um, rehabilitation, um, in the understanding that young people are incredibly malleable, um, and that punishment simply did not make sense um, uh, for them. And the unfortunate thing uh, was, as any, um, I think, innovators or, or sort of first stage um, progressives, uh, progressive projects, the, the, these institutions were flawed. They were, they reflected, I think, um, a somewhat narrow uh, mindset um, uh, focused, for example, on um, white immigrants in the big city, not addressing um, problems of uh, Native American children um, across the country or um, black children um, in the rural South. Um, they also, I think, um, were limited in focusing more on protecting kids rather than seeing them as full human beings worthy of empowerment and autonomy rights. And so the juvenile justice system, for all of its benefits, and I think forward thinking, uh, ended up being plagued by um, sort of very paternalistic um, kind of treatment of children. And unfortunately, I think what we saw over the course of the 20th century was, particularly during the civil rights movement, um, a recognition of the problems with these institutions, as opposed to seeing their potential and helping them sort of change in a way that addressed these shortcomings. Rather, there was this sort of consensus version in the, the 1970s that this early work had to be raised. And what ended up happening is we neither protect children nor empower them um, today. 
And, you know, we have emerged, as I mentioned before, with uh, a very different approach where the matter of raising kids is left to parents. Back in 1912, President Taft created the first agency in the world, federal agency, focused on the whole child. It's called the Children's Bureau. And that vision lost out over the course of the century. Um, we, you know, it still exists. It's a, it's a much more constrained, focused uh, entity um, within a much larger structure. But I think, you know, the child savers uh, ideals were right. Um, and one of the things that's just, I think, really upsetting is to see the progress in almost any other area over the last 100 years. I mean, if you think about the Wright brothers creating flight and what we can now do, take tourists into space. If you think about advances in computer technology, in artificial intelligence, in genetic engineering, it's, it's truly remarkable. And yet if you look on any other metric related to children, things have just slowed to a trudge. In some cases, we're now even moving backwards. And, and that is just absolutely um, uh, uh, unacceptable, um, I think. Even, you know, even on things like child labor, you would think at least that one were settled. But even there, you know, I think there are, there are examples um, of, us, of us backsliding. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and as we were discussing earlier, so the Washington Post reported recently that both the states of Iowa and Minnesota are introducing laws to uh, loosen child labor rules for teenagers to work in industrial jobs, claiming that because of the pandemic labor shortages, they need to employ teenagers in these dangerous jobs. And a Reuters investigation last December found immigrant children as young as 13 years old working in car parts factories that supply parts to Hyundai and Kia cars. So, you know, it's a very dangerous juncture, I think, that we're at. And, um, you know, where do we go from here? Could we actually lose this achievement um, with all of the other things that that you said that were crusaded for 100 years ago? Yeah, uh, honestly, I, I am worried. Um, you know, I opened the book um, with this vignette um, taken from a newspaper um, in 1906 of children, you know, working in a cigarette factory, um, rolling cigarettes. Um, and you might think, well, that's absolutely a relic of the past. But then I fast forward to North Carolina today. Children are picking tobacco and often migrant children, picking tobacco, getting acute nicotine poisoning in America today. And if you think about where do our chocolate bars come from, there are children, literal slaves, working in Africa, locked at night in shacks so that we can eat cheap chocolate bars. This is not, right, something that we have dealt with yet. And I think, um, you know, I want to say that these efforts to roll back labor protections um, are, you know, a flash in the pan and we'll get back on track. But I'm not sure that's the case. 
um, in a moment where many Americans are still feeling the effects of inflation and concerns about food, um, there's a desire by um, certainly agricultural um, uh, businesses uh, to keep costs uh, low. Uh, and one of the ways you do that is you employ migrant children. There aren't enough workers um, for many of these jobs. And so this is seen, lawmakers say, well, this is a necessity. My constituents are worried about the cost of strawberries, whatever it is. And so we just need ways to get kids into these jobs. And the really, I think, shocking thing is not simply the work, but the conditions these kids yeah. are exposed to. So down in North Carolina, you might assume, well, okay, we, we have protections, regulations, but they're, they're very loosely interpreted. So maybe we are no longer spraying pesticides directly on the children as they're working, but we may be spraying them in a field right next by, and the wind carries it right into those sensitive young lungs. Oftentimes, these kids are left and their families are left to protect themselves. So, you know, to avoid kind of the contact with the skin that can lead to uh, nicotine poisoning, you know, kids are themselves putting trash bags onto their hands as they're uh, picking and working. And why are the kids working for the same reason that they worked 100 years ago? Their families are poor and they're desperate for money. This is so their families can eat so they can help their mom and dad. I just want to take a second with this contemporary kind of horror to, to name the intersections that we're talking about here, because it has historically and today been the case that the children we disregard are the children of immigrants, the children who are children of color and the poor. And, you know, even in the time of the 19th and early 20th centuries, when we were having this incredible expansion of investment in children and recognition of children's rights, you know, in New York City, where I live, there's my the, the school my daughter attended was built in 1895. It's a beautiful, classic public school. Um, at that same time, you know, children in uh, reservations were being stolen from their parents and sent to schools in name only, genocidal boarding schools. And children were take, being taken off the streets of New York, immigrant children, German and Italian and Irish immigrants, and sent to live with strangers in what became the foundation of the modern foster care movement, the orphan train movement. And so there's always been this tension in American society about what families are worth keeping together when you have to remove a child in order to, quote unquote, save it because you don't respect the, the family that that child comes from. And I think that as we move forward into a world where, frankly, America is aging, the older population is more likely to be white. The younger population is more likely to be people of color and immigrants. And, uh, you know, this disregard, what, what Lisa Delpit, the education writer, the Black education writer, calls other people's children. The disregard for children makes it so much easier when in your mind, in some way, they are other people's children. I think that's a, a great insight. Um, and we saw this during the pandemic, right? So one of the things when we learn, look at, you know, um, learning outcomes, well, it didn't affect all Americans the same way. Yeah. You talk about privilege. Well, my wife and I both work, but we have jobs 
that allowed for flexibility. So when my daughter's Zoom first grade kicked her off, I was in the next room and I could pause my teaching or my office and get her back onto school. A lot of parents could not be there. They had to choose, am I going to be in the house or am I going to be at work? And so when there were problems, when their kids went off task, there was no one there to help. There was no one there to fill in the gaps. And so in some ways, we are reenacting the terrible decisions that we have made for decades and centuries right now. And I think absolutely, right, when you're thinking about prioritizing kids, you know, you need to think about, right, the kids who have the very least first. But I think we need to think about all children, but I think that's where we need to to, to invest our resources. And I think that's where, you know, we can make progress from those early 20th century progressives. So this isn't just a, a story about the past or about the problems. You have a unique and innovative program of solutions. Um, they're really kind of invigorating. Um, so tell me about children's rights. What are children's rights? What are the core and most important children's rights in your opinion? And how should they be enforced? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, we need to think about rights rather than simply needs or capacities. Other frameworks that I think people, other scholars who I really respect have offered for addressing um, deficits in children's welfare in the United States and around the world. I think we need to focus on rights because in America, rights are powerful. They are the things that cannot be ignored. It's rights talk is, is the way you get things done. Um, and in the book, I really take a developmental um, uh, approach in which I start out at the early stages of development all the way up to the cusp of adulthood. And at each moment, I sort of ask, you know, what is it? What is the right corresponding right um, that we need to recognize here? Now, I don't suggest that I cover all of the rights. I pick six ones that I think are really core rights. And I start, right, with the earlier earliest years, and I focus on um, a right to attachment. So the data is so clear on the value of maintaining and encouraging and fostering strong bonds between young children and the parents or other primary caregivers. And I trace, though, how in many ways you mentioned, right, our treatment of indigenous children, um, separating them. That is not, again, our past. That is our present. And it's our present not simply for children at the border. It's our experience with children when their parents are imprisoned. Not a few thousand. Literally, over the last decades, millions of children who have been forced into the foster care system, forced into orphanages because their parents have been locked up. This is also, though, I think, our, our practice when it comes to the foster care system in general. Um, oftentimes, you know, I think it's it's the general public often thinks that kids end up in the foster system um, when their parents are, like, physically or sexually abusing them. So many kids in this country end up in foster care because their kid, their parents who love them very much and want very much for them to have everything in the world simply 
do not have the resources to provide a stable place to live, to provide food. And so these kids get taken away from their parents when they need them most because of poverty. And so the first chapter looking at early development is focused on the right to attachment. I then look at sort of the next stage of development and argue that we need to recognize a right to investment. The idea that every child in America ought to be capitalized because that is the best way that we, again, get that long tail of success for entire, uh, uh, the entire lifespan. The chapter that I look at after that is a right to community. So as I discussed so often in the United States, we empower parents um, to really cut off access that their children may have to the community, to our collective knowledge, to books, learning about the way the world works, to educational opportunities at school. We cut off, we allow parents to cut off their access to all of our medical advancements and technology. We all allow them to cut children off from all of the valuable bonds that they might make um, with other human beings um, and their communities themselves. Um, and so I argue that, you know, we really need to think about um, all children as, you know, part of our investment and, and, and to think of uh, not to say that parents have no role. Parents have a primary role, a, a vital role, but it's to err always on the side of maintaining those broader bonds um, with with the the rest of America. Um, the fourth chapter, I focus on the right to be a kid. So as young people get older, one of the things that we start to see is this um, terrible dynamic where we tend to suddenly start to treat kids as adults in conditions and in situations where they are not at all prepared for adulthood and not at all uh, worthy of some of our um, harshness that we reserve for adults. I'm thinking primarily of the criminal justice system. Um, but we also, I think, um, uh, treat kids as uh, infants in conditions where they really actually are ready to be on their own. And I think a lot that has to do with kids actually being able to go out and play and explore and experience the world um, on their own. So the right to be a kid is both the right not to be um, tried in the adult criminal justice system at age 15 um, and given a sentence of life without the possibility of parole um, as a young man, that was one of the most powerful interviews I did was with um, a man looking back at his experience at age uh, 15, 16, um, being locked away, given a sentence to be in prison for the rest of his life. Um, I think it's both that and it's also thinking about that kid um, who today, uh, when I was a kid, you know, I was allowed to go out on my bike and, you know, at age 11 or 12 and ride to my friend's house and go and explore the neighborhood. And today we're so afraid of, you know, where, let me check the sex offender registry and let me worry that, that kids today are so geographically constrained and it really inhibits um, their proper development. Now, in the fifth chapter, 
I look at empowerment rights. So this is the right of children to have a voice for and power in our world. As we get to the last chapter, which is their right to start fresh, I look at all the ways that we promise kids on the cusp of adulthood, the world is your oyster. You are now free. Do whatever you want. Live where you want. Be who you want. And yet the choices we've made as a society to constrain kids on all of those fronts. So we lock kids in from the very first day of adulthood with tens of thousands of dollars of educational debt. It does not have to be that way. In other countries have made different decisions and we could make a very different bargain with our young people to invest in their and our futures by ensuring that they started their professional lives debt-free. We make choices with respect to geographic mobility. It used to be that a young person on the cusp of adulthood could move anywhere they wanted. Wherever the jobs were, a person set off for that uh, city or town. But today, because of zoning laws and other uh, uh, rules about um, benefits and other things, um, adults have created a landscape where if you're a young person without family wealth, you can't take a job in San Francisco because you do not have enough startup capital to pay the security deposit the first and last month's rent. You cannot take that job. And this is, again, bad for kids, but it's also bad for America. We need people to go where the jobs are. That is what has traditionally made us a strong country. And so, again, I think the overall reason that I use this rights framework is not because any individual right is uh, more essential than another one um, necessarily. It's because I think this puts us in the right mindset. As we start to talk about rights in these different conditions, we start to see how we ought to recognize and protect and empower and invest in kids in everything we need, everything we do. We ought to put children first. It's a really comprehensive and I think galvanizing framework. I think it connects to so many different, you know, debates and issues that we're experiencing in our society. And as you're speaking, I was really reflecting on some of the flashpoints of the last you know, seven or eight years, Michael Brown, a teenager being murdered by police, um, you know, teenagers leading the Black Lives Matter movement, the March for Our Lives post Parkland, which we're now several years out from Greta Thunberg and the climate Fridays for Future movement, climate strike movement. All of those are teenagers exercising their civic empowerment in the face of incredible challenges. And yet the portrayals of teenagers, you know, we constantly hear about uh, their their phone addictions. We hear about their their social ills. We hear about their their mental health problems. We see them portrayed as criminals. Um, that you know, if if schools are closed, the, the biggest problem will be carjackings from idle teenagers, rather than thinking about what we owe these teenagers and how we can make the neighborhoods safer for them so that they can enjoy their lives. Um, and so all of this really, I think, you know, speaks really strongly to contemporary debates and, and, and puts a new lens on it. Um, I think one of the most interesting ones has to do with what we are calling the parents' rights movement really is is a, you know, uh, mainly right-wing organized um, kind of all operative 
situation where you're taking people um, who show up at school board meetings and they're using these, um, you know, socially uh, reactionary issues, essentially, you know, anti-trans rights, anti-gay rights, anti-discussion of race or history in schools. And in a lot of cases, it's actually students themselves who are pushing back and saying, no, we want to read these books. We want to study these topics. This speaks to our lives. And this is something that, you know, we, we should be able to. And so I wonder what you think about um, how how this relates to things like, for example, the current controversy over AP African-American history. Yeah. So I think um, that's a really um, interesting frame. And obviously, to one, when we're talking about kids today, this is the one that is on the front of, you know, every newspaper. Um, and I think, you know, the reaction to, as you rightly described, largely a conservative movement um, has been on the left to say, OK, well, we actually need a strong parents' rights movement that's a progressive parents' rights movement. So when you say we need to pull all of these CRT books or anything uh, that mentions the word trans or gay in the school library, well, we, we, what we need on the left is uh, parents to come out and say, well, my kids have a right, and I have a right as a parent for my kids to learn about that. I have a right for my kids to learn uh, AP African-American history and learn about an AP African-American history that deals with contemporary issues. And I personally think, even though that is very well-intentioned, and I certainly feel the same outrage at school censorship that I think a lot of these uh, parents on the left feel, I think we need to take a completely different approach, which is approach that talks about children's rights and that actually brings young people into the conversation. Right now, you know, Governor DeSantis is absolutely fine having a backdrop of kids, but they're they're just they're just you know when he's signing some bill, it's just a bunch of kids lined up behind him. I want to hear what those kids actually think. I want to hear right what their experience is. What do they think they need to learn? What are their experiences? As you mentioned, this is the most multicultural uh, generation that America has ever seen. They look and have experienced life very differently, and they want very different things. And so, you know, sometimes people will say, well, okay, you've outlined these six rights. Which is the most important? Well, I really think the most important is probably the empowerment rights. Why? Because I'm not so certain that we will make progress if we continue to leave it to adults until children have real power in this world, a real voice. And that means voting rights. That means a right to hold office. That means a right to serve on a jury. That means a right to be part of some of our core business organizations, our core uh, decision-making bodies. And I think that's when we're going to actually be able to see a realization of all these other rights. When kids have a seat at the table, and when we listen to their valuable perspectives and ideas. I mean, that is so fascinating. And it really puts this book in the context of the great American story, which is group after group achieving suffrage, right? Achieving the franchise and being able to participate as citizens. But with children, it's such a challenging question. I mean, you talked about wanting the vote when you were 12 years old. What do you concretely advocate here? And and how do you place this in the context of other 
calls for this sort of thing? I mean, do you, do you really want how young and in what elections and in what ways and how would you regulate it? Just tell me. So I think the first thing that we just have to confront is people's visceral reaction. When you mention teenagers, you know, you could say young as 12, but let's focus on high schoolers voting. Okay. Um, when I talk to audiences about this, the immediate reaction that I generally get from adults is, right, they're not competent to do that. And so what's great is that actually experts have studied this. And so when psychologists have run experiments looking at voting relevant cognition, what they find is the average 16-year-old does not seem different than the average adult when it comes to those moments that allow for deliberation, weighing options, reasoning, where kids, kids have different brains than adults, but brains are not kind of these general balloon inflate things that inflate generally over the course of development. Different areas of the brain develop at different times. And those areas related to the, the largely kind of um, the voting relevant cognition develop earlier than those that deal with things like impulse control um, and being affected by peer influence. And so I think there's a strong cognitive neuroscience uh, basis for extending rights to teenagers based on their competence. Now, I think the other thing, though, that we have to realize is this is just averages. And we let any adult, no matter whether they're below average or above average, vote. No questions asked. And I think we need to think about, well, what are the conditions actually when we take away voting from people? Well, it's an individual determination that's made, right, for people who really are at their end of their life and suffering very, very significant cognitive deficits. It's an individualized determination. And it's not. It's only related to voting. So it may be that you can't dress yourself. But if you are able to really understand what voting is, we allow you to continue to vote. Um, and so I think, you know, the other thing that I always like to ask is, well, how complicated is it actually to vote for president? How much do you really need to know? And how much do average Americans, average adult Americans actually know? I, I mean, I read the newspaper quotes when people and, and they say things they don't say I deeply engage in the issues. They say, I think that this, you know, Ron DeSantis seems like he seems like a average guy that I can sit down with a have a beer with. And that same person who says, I, well, I don't know how many branches of government are. I don't know. I am offended that you suggest that a 15-year-old should be able to vote. We made a decision. The founders made a decision that we were going to have a broad franchise. And we have pushed forward over the last two centuries to get closer and closer to that realization. But we've left a huge portion of the population out of the conversation. I think the other thing that I often hear when I bring up extending voting rights is, okay, maybe they have the basic competence, but they don't have the life experience. And again, I think that's wrong. Young people know a lot, and they know a lot about the most pressing social issues we face as a country. Children today have experienced lockdown drills. 
One of the, the, the saddest things I saw this week was a tweet that came out from a freshman at MSU who just 14 months earlier had experienced a, a, a shooting incident in her high school. This is someone who is like 18 years old and has already gone through two active shooter experiences in her short life. They know what lockdown uh, lockdowns are like. They have trans friends. They have gay friends. They have friends who uh, are from cultures that are very different than them. They understand technology. They have been on TikTok. And so when the questions that the U.S. Congress is confronting, how to regulate social media companies, what to do about gun control, whether to address global warming, these are things that kids have real ideas and experiences and can contribute to our conversation. One of the things that I think people sometimes push back is, well, if we let these kids, this is going to be a bias, this is going to bias things towards youth. It's the exact opposite. The status quo is biased towards older Americans. And older Americans have very different values and very different trajectories. If you're 85 years old, are you really caring about climate change in the same way as a 15-year-old? No. That 15-year-old is going to live through a very different world filled with wildfires and floods and coastal storms and the unrest and economic fallout of a changing climate. And so I think, you know, to me, um, Change is all, a change always feels wrong. Change always feels um, dangerous, but it's the status quo that's dangerous. We are not addressing these long-term problems in the United States quickly and effectively enough to really uh, be in a position to address them. It's really amazing to see the baby boomer generation who once said, "Don't trust anyone over 30." holding on to power with white knuckles as they create a Senate and a house in some sense that is so much older than America and clearly making decisions that don't prioritize the interests of the young and future generations, as you, as you mentioned, I think to me, the clearest argument with in favor of teenage voting is the civic engagement that young people take part in that we see around us. They're very clear civic leaders. And I speak to them all the time in different movements and their their sense of duty, you know, to uphold a better vision of America is plain. Um, you know, we have the first Gen Z member of Congress, a 25-year-old who came out of the Parkland movement, um, but there needs to be many more to balance these interests. I think that's, that, that's, that's an evident argument that you're making that I, that I definitely agree with. Um, and, and let's talk now about what that would mean for policy. You know, you talk about changing how we interpret the Constitution, um, reinvigorating and reimagining a children's bureau um, and doing child impact assessments on policies. So these big picture policy issues, let's take them one by one. Tell me what, how they would work and why they're important. Yeah, so I obviously I think there are things we can do today, small things like we can just lower the voting age in municipalities in your city, in your town, there are likely efforts underway simply to lower the voting age in your local elections. That's happened already in the United States, a number of towns and 
Maryland has led the way. Um, but other countries have also done this, right? So there are countries around the world which have lowered their voting age to 16. That's kind of an easy fix. We could do it really, really quickly. Now, some of these things, I think, are longer term, uh, really change vision uh, type ideas. One of those would be uh, introducing child impact assessment. So as we started this conversation, one of the things that I think in my research as a law professor, which is just maddening, is how often we don't think about the impact on kids of some policy or regulation until it's already causing a harm to kids. And so just in the way that we do environmental impact assessments at the front end, I think we really need to think about whenever we're doing anything, passing any law, whether that relates to children or not. It might be an education bill, but it might be an energy bill. It doesn't seem to have anything. It might be uh, a bill related to um, preempting changes at the local level to the minimum wage. That seems to have nothing to do with children. But when you actually do the impact assessment, you think, oh, actually, if we inhibit you know, localities in our state or maybe states from changing the minimum wage on their own, what that ends up happening is this is going to put a whole bunch of kids into poverty or or keep them in poverty. And so I think, you know, uh, uh, child impact assessments are really a very promising way to get lawmakers, uh, regulators to think about kids on the front end. One of the things that's great is we don't have to reinvent the wheel. This is something that other countries around the world, particularly in Europe, are already doing and it's working. So I think that's one thing we could do. I really would love to reinvigorate this Children's Bureau idea. I think there should be a standalone agency focused on children. At the federal level, we could also have Children's Bureaus at the state level. And I think what this would do would allow us to really coordinate these child impact statements, but I think would also allow us to kind of um, see across issues that are currently kind of allocated to individual agencies. So take something like lead poisoning. We built up all of this infrastructure in the United States with lead pipes, with lead paint, and now our children are having facing the cost of that. But the remediation, the addressing that currently is kind of spread out. The Department of Education deals with things. Um, the Department of Housing is dealing with sort of things. The Environmental Protection Agency is dealing with certain aspects. And I think in order to really make progress, we need that coordination. Um, now, I think, you know, we also need to be thinking about remaking law more broadly to prioritize kids. And so, you know, I am in favor, for example, of replacing originalism, that is a model of interpreting the Constitution that says, you know, when deciding the meaning of the Second Amendment in the context of, say, domestic violence, whether we can keep weapons away from people who uh, have committed uh, acts of domestic violence. Originalism says, well, you should go back and look at uh, whether, you know, domestic violence was a grounds to you know, deprive a person of their rights 200 years ago. Surprise, surprise, it was not, and therefore we will not have that uh, uh, ability to take away a weapon um, from someone who may very well use it against their children. 
I say no. I think that a proper approach to constitutional interpretation, a much better approach, would be to say, well, what does the Constitution mean in light of the lived experiences of children today? What is the best approach to protecting them today? Now, I think for a long time, this would have seemed like a truly radical um, idea. But over the last few years, with the change in the federal judiciary, the uh, capture of the Supreme Court um, by the conservative movement, we actually have a whole bunch of conservatives coming out and saying, well, originalism was always a fraud anyway. It was a useful end. It was a way to kind of forestall uh, progressive uh, movement on a whole bunch of issues that we cared about. And now we've won. And so no more originalism. This is the Dobbs decision, right, with respect to abortion. I think this is a moment for Americans in general to say, okay, if originalism is up, let's change how we interpret not simply the Constitution, but all statutes. Let's prioritize kids. Now, I think why that is such a good idea, again, is because it allows us, when we focus on kids, we make decisions for the long-term health of this country. And I think when we ask this broader question of what is the law for, I think we can answer that question by saying to prioritize children. I think that is the best pathway forward as a nation. It's a perfect place to end it. Thank you so much, Adam. I learned so much from this conversation and from the book. Um, Thank you. It It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. 